The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focused summary of chapters 13 and 14. Fleeing from an educational world that esteems gymnasiums over science, Gottlieb is driven to seek employment from a pharmaceutical company he had heartily damned for its doubtful vaccines and its commercialism. He would work for the Dawson Hunziker Company part-time if he might use their labs. To his surprise, Hunziker himself calls to offer him a job, granting him freedom to research on the condition that if he does succeed in creating a valuable serum, they will have the privilege of manufacturing it. Gottlieb persuades himself that he was wrong to scold the commercialists, who are more authentic at least than the professors. He packs up his family and sets off for his new job with visions of fiery enterprise and the air of a conqueror. At the announcement of his new venture, some grin over the abasement of this highbrow, while Martin mourns the shattered image of his hero. Gottlieb is received by his new employer pantingly, and if his co-workers talk too much of money, he still finds them free of the pomposity of college instructors. Over time, they grow tired of his mathematical enthusiasms and his thrusts at their commercialism, and they too begin to refer to him as the old Jew. Gottlieb comes to see that he was right to have damned this company that produces remedies with all the value of mud and sells them at exorbitant prices. But with his freedom in the lab, he succeeds in producing his masterwork, a discovery that will revolutionize immunology. If he is right. That if is enough for Hunziker, who wants to patent his method of synthesizing antibodies and immediately put them on the market in large quantities, and promises Gottlieb large commissions. But it isn't enough for Gottlieb, who thinks production and even announcement should wait until he is sure. He protests Hunziker's arguments about duty to the stockholders, but he is on shaky ground because he has no contract. Gottlieb prepares for disaster, moving into a smaller house and giving up all luxuries. His son turns on him for keeping the family strapped. His wife dies, his eldest daughter runs away, and Gottlieb is left alone, pondering the book of Job. Truly, the Lord hath smitten me and my house. Out of the dimness, his youngest, Miriam, appears, and with her loyalty behind him, he stands up to Hunziker. Then Gottlieb is approached by McGurk, the institution that stands in his mind as the soundest and freest organization for pure scientific research in the country, and offered the position as chief of the Department of Bacteriology and Immunology with absolute freedom of research and $5,000 a year. But Gottlieb doesn't want to hear any talk of money, and he is suddenly very glad that with Hunziker, he has no contract. Martin and Leora go for a drive across the prairie, and the feeling of sunlit freedom is checked by first Mr. Tozer, then Mrs. Tozer, then Bert Tozer's admonition that they better be home for dinner promptly at six o'clock. They begin to wonder whether they were so wise to live with the family and save money. To the Tozer's simple solution that he should fix up an office out in the barn, 
He replies indignantly that he's not a hired man in a livery stable or a kid looking for a place to put his bird's eggs. Leora intervenes, demanding that they loan Martin $1,000 outright to spend as he sees fit, and threatening that if they refuse, she and Martin will board the next train back to Zenith. Leora wins. The office is only the first of many issues over which the Tozers try to wield control, and for Martin and Leora, quote, the free and virile land was leagues away and for years forgotten, unquote. The search for an office becomes an exercise in diplomacy when Mr. Tozer suggests that Martin rent an office from the Norblums, who are thinking of moving. Martin wants to look at other options, but Mr. Tozer warns that he doesn't want to start off in Wheatsylvania by making enemies of the Norblums. So, while they think, Martin waits, fearful of these dread and eternal figures whose enmity would crush him. While he waits, he has nothing to do but sit about the bank with Bert Tozer, enduring his constant jibes and longing to be called on a case. The only one that comes is Agnes Ingleblad, the town hypochondriac who goes to every quack for a cure. When wise the Pollock, a stock seller who had to get out of town after selling too much stock, offers Martin his shack at $15 a month paid a year in advance, Martin takes it and glories in the pride of possession of a place utterly his own. The Tozers upbraid him for antagonizing the still-thinking Norblums, but with Leora standing beside him on the shack's porch, her arm around his neck, Martin looks out across the flamboyant horizon and hymns to the glory of his future. The second of my posts was called Sinclair Lewis Refuses the Pulitzer Prize. I have a great story for you. I've always known this novel as the Pulitzer Prize-winning Aerosmith by Sinclair Lewis. I did not know, until today, that Lewis refused the Pulitzer Prize. It was decided that since the prize was awarded to a novel and not to the author, the award would stand, and Lewis could simply refuse the prize money. Lewis's acclaimed novels Babbitt and Main Street had both been denied the prize because they failed to meet an explicit standard that winning novels must present wholesome American life. Aerosmith apparently satisfied this standard. But it was Lewis's belief that this criterion was misguided and destructive. He explained his position eloquently in a letter refusing the prize, which I'm going to read to you in its entirety. According to an article that I linked in the Facebook group, in ensuing years, this requirement quietly disappeared from the Pulitzer plan of award. I've always loved this novel and Sinclair Lewis. I now love both a little more. Here's his letter. Sirs, I wish to acknowledge your choice of my novel Aerosmith for the Pulitzer Prize. That prize I must refuse and my refusal would be meaningless unless I explained the reasons. All prizes, like all titles, are dangerous. The seekers for prizes tend to labor not for inherent excellence, but for alien rewards. They tend to write this, or timorously to avoid writing that, in order to tickle the prejudices of a haphazard committee. 
and the Pulitzer Prize for novels is peculiarly objectionable because the terms of it have been constantly and grievously misrepresented. Those terms are that the prize shall be given, quote, for the American novel published during the year which shall best present the wholesome atmosphere of American life and the highest standard of American manners and manhood, unquote. This phrase, if it means anything whatever, would appear to mean that the appraisal of the novels shall be made not according to their actual literary merit, but in obedience to whatever code of good form may chance to be popular at the moment. That there is such a limitation of the award is little understood. Because of the condensed manner in which the announcement is usually reported, and because certain publishers have trumpeted that any novel which has received the Pulitzer Prize has thus been established without qualification as the best novel, the public has come to believe that the prize is the highest honor which an American novelist can receive. The Pulitzer Prize for novels signifies, already, much more than a convenient thousand dollars to be accepted even by such writers as smile secretly at the actual wording of the terms it is tending to become a sanctified tradition. There is a general belief that the administrators of the prize are a pontifical body with the discernment and power to grant the prize as the ultimate proof of merit. It is believed that they are always guided by a committee of responsible critics, though in the case both of this and other Pulitzer Prizes, the administrators can, and sometimes do, quite arbitrarily reject the recommendations of their supposed advisers. If already the Pulitzer Prize is so important, it is not absurd to suggest that in another generation it may, with the actual terms of the award ignored, become the one thing for which any ambitious novelist will strive. And the administrators of the prize may become a supreme court, a college of cardinals, so rooted and so sacred that to challenge them will be to commit blasphemy. Such is the French Academy, and we have had the spectacle of even an Anatole France intriguing for election. Only by regularly refusing the Pulitzer Prize can novelists keep such a power from being permanently set up over them. Between the Pulitzer Prizes, the American Academy of Arts and Letters, and its training school, the National Institute of Arts and Letters, amateur boards of censorship, and the inquisition of earnest literary ladies, every compulsion is put upon writers to become safe, polite, obedient, and sterile. In protest, I declined election to the National Institute of Arts and Letters some years ago, and now I must decline the Pulitzer Prize. I invite other writers to consider the fact that by accepting the prizes and approval of these vague institutions, we are admitting their authority, publicly confirming them as the final judges of literary excellence, and I inquire whether any prize is worth that subservience. I am, sirs, yours sincerely, Sinclair Lewis. The last of my posts is called Where I Get Bogged Down. I do love this novel. I love Sinclair Lewis's inventive use of language and his ability to exploit all the nuances of language to serve his ends. I love witnessing Martin's journey and all the moral quandaries he has to face as he decides who he wants to be and where he wants to go. 
and I love Lewis's masterful ability to expose and make sport of so many different types. But though Babbitt and Main Street abound with many of these same virtues, I personally have never been able to finish either one. I need the dose of idealism, however impure or fruitless it might be in this novel, to get me through. And even with that element, by this point in Aerosmith, I feel somewhat bogged down. These chapters were particularly dreary. Watching Gottlieb, after his dubious feelings of promise about his new job, endure the exploitation of Hunziker, the criticism of his jealous peers, the scorn of his inferior co-workers, the ingratitude of his profligate son, the unhelpfulness of his dull wife, and the poverty that idealism seems inevitably to bring, is wearing on the soul. There is a glimmer of possibility in the offer from McGurk, but if the pattern continues, we can expect this, too, to be a disappointment. Then watching Martin, after his dubious feelings of promise about his new life in Wheatsylvania, endure the nagging of his in-laws, the critical, watchful eye of small-town culture, and the tedium of empty days, is similarly draining. I still believe it's worthwhile, for the elements I mentioned above, and for more to come. But if you too are feeling bogged down, I wanted to give you a little pat on the shoulder, and tell you I understand. <laughs>